This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area in center field almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Yep, and I'm Schaefer Brewing Company. Very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening. Like most kids who grew up in the 80s, I watched ESPN SportsCenter around the clock. And today's guest on the Lost Ballparks podcast was featured prominently during those years on SportsCenter. And actually, he now makes the third sports anchor from ESPN from that time period uh, that's been on the Lost Ballparks podcast. He's a five-time Emmy Award winner and National Radio Hall of Famer, Charlie Steiner. Ramiro Pena at third, even with a bag and a fly ball to right field. No, you're kidding. You're kidding. It's a grand slam. This doesn't happen even in Hollywood. Charlie Steiner will begin his 19th season as a play-by-play announcer for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he is my guest today on the Lost Ballparks podcast. Charlie, how are you? I'm good. How you doing? Doing good. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'll start with this. You grew up on Long Island in the 1950s, a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And I, I know it's been a few years, but can you describe in as much detail as possible the when and where of your first Major League Baseball game and some of the sights, smells, and sounds that went with it. Well, I grew up on Long Island, oh, maybe 15 miles from Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. And when I was five or six years old, the first time I I heard a baseball game on the radio, a very large radio in my mom's very small kitchen, I heard the crack of the bat, the sound of the crowd off in the distance, the umpire bellowing out a strike. And then I heard this overarching voice. Colfax checking his signs now with Campanella. Sandy winds and delivers. Fastball for a strike. And it was Vid, who I wanted to be when I grew up almost immediately. That was my first brush with baseball. And then there were games on on weekends. I I don't remember them being on every night. uh, And I would watch those. As time went on, I was trying to convince my dad to take me to a game at Ebbets Field. He wasn't the greatest baseball fan on earth, so I had to drag him to the game rather than the other way around. And those were the days when, you know, most of the grown-ups would go to the game with a shirt and tie and a hat. And everything at that point, this is 1957, the first year I went to a, a ball game, everything was black and white. Newspapers were black and white. What little television there was was black and white. Magazines were black and white, except for perhaps the occasional color uh, cover. So we go to Ebbets Field, which historically and memorably was considered a bandbox, but not to a seven-year-old kid who lived his life in a black and white world. We arrive at Ebbets Field. We go upstairs. We had the worst seats inside Ebbets Field. Uh, There was a double-deck bleachers out in left, and we were in the absolute back row of Ebbets Field. But as as we are walking through the corridor, 
suddenly I see the greenest pasture I've ever seen in my life. And to me, as a seven-year-old, Ebbetsfield was about the biggest park I had ever seen. And so I was jaw-dropped and gobsmacked. And all of a sudden, this black and white world had become a visually spectacular world with colors, shapes, sounds, smells, feels. And often right field was the iconic Schaefer scoreboard, the Abe Stark sign at the bottom, hit sign, win suit. It was one of those days that I will never, ever forget. And that's one of the things I think that makes baseball more unique than all the other sports. It certainly was of my generation. The very first time you go to a game, the first time you go to a game with your dad. And again, the black and white world had become this brilliantly colored world. The Dodgers played the Cincinnati Reds that day. Well, a fine baseball evening here tonight in Brooklyn and at Ebbets Field. The fans coming in to see the ball game between the Cincinnati Redlegs and the Brooklyn Dodgers. We'll remind you there are plenty of seats available. So if you're in the neighborhood, make your way out to Ebbets Field and come on by and see a fine ball game. Gino Simoli was the left fielder. And Gino Simoli, who has the hot stick right now, batting behind Gill and the Dodger up in the number six spot. I remember it was Gino Simoli because his back was to us the entire game. We were watching behind him. <laughs> and so they gave me, the day that I signed with the Dodgers, the box score of that game. The Dodgers beat the Reds that day. And so, yeah, there's not a whole lot about that day that I don't remember, but I think the most memorable part of it was that first moment where I walked out from the concourse to see this field. Uh, you know, it was long before the title of Field of Dreams, but that's what it was. It was this brilliant green pasture and the brown dirt, and there are the Dodgers in their milk-white uniforms with the blue numbers on their back and the red numbers on their front beneath the Dodger logo. Oh, yeah, that as we talk about it now, I can vividly remember all of it. You know, because of the oversaturated media world we live in today, it's hard to imagine that there was ever a time and place where for many families, the primary source of entertainment was a radio or in your case, maybe a black and white RCA Victor TV down in the basement. And primary source of information was the daily newspaper like the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. But such was life in 1940s and the 1950s. What are your memories of listening to Dodger games on the radio? I think it was your mom's Zenith radio in the kitchen uh, as a kid. What do you remember about listening to those games? About 15 feet to my right, as you and I are speaking, that radio is on a uh, coffee table in my home. It was the very first time I heard the crack of the bat and the sound of the crowd. Sidearm fastball rammed into left field for a base hit. So Peewee comes up with his first hit, and that makes the 1957 season official here in Brooklyn. I had no idea what to make of it. You know, when you're five or six, seven years old, what is, what's coming out of that little box? And then there was Vin's voice. Frank Robinson, doubled, struck out, and walked. And my mom said, matter-of-factly, that's his job. And I went, really? And, and in that moment, I thought, wow, this could be very cool. So I vividly remember all of it. And from that moment, my ear and my brain, my sensibilities were involved in how that voice describing that action 
got to me and how he then did it. I became, I wouldn't say a connoisseur of sports broadcasting, but I certainly was interested in it immediately. And I wouldn't miss it for the world. And then as the months went on, although looking back on it, it seemed like years, on the weekends when when the Dodgers played on Channel 9, uh, I would go downstairs to the basement. We had an old black and white RCA Victor television set. Good evening, everybody. Here we are. Evans Field. Chicago Cubs are in here. Turned the sound down and started announcing games. <laughs> I had an audience of two, my mom and dad, and they used four fingers to cover their ears. Um, <laughs> but I was in this world of magic that was, wow, this is just great. I knew when I was truly, when I was seven years old, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. Now, whether or not I would be able to get to that point was another story entirely. But I always felt this is it. And I always had a pretty discerning ear early on and into my teenage years and then well beyond that of what kind of works and what doesn't in broadcasting a game and being the eyes, the ears and the voice of the moment to those who are or might be listening. So this is something that it started with me about the time I can remember remembering things. Yeah, in addition to Vin, though, who were some of the other voices of the game that you remember listening to? Well, Vin was the guy. And then he had uh, two partners in 57, Al Helfer. Bagley comes in with a crossfire, and that's low and outside. One ball and no strike. And Jerry Doggett. Well, if you got anything planned for the next 15 or 20 minutes, we suggest you stay right there with your ear in that radio. Uh, Doggett would come out to Los Angeles with Vin. But after the Dodgers left, I became a Yankee fan because they were the leftovers. The Dodgers and the Giants had left. So then I focused in on the Yankees in 58 through 61 and listened to the, the great Mel Allen. Listen to Red Barber. No score. This ball game in this series, just as tight as a brand new pair of shoes on a rainy day. Uh, listen to a young Phil Rizzuto. Slow curve, hit on a line to left center field, way back there. And Mantle makes a beautiful running backhand catch. A tremendous play by Mickey Mantle. So those were the guys. And then the Mets came in in 62, and I was 13. Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. And the Mets colors were blue and orange, the Dodger blue and the giant orange. And I figured, well, they're made for me. I'm going to be older than a team. So I became a Met fan and then listened to uh, Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner. Well, hi there, everybody. This is Bob Murphy welcoming you to the first regular season game in the history of the New York Mets. I would root for the team, but I would listen to the announcers, and they became, in my mind, friends of mine. And I wanted to hear what my friends had to say every day about the team that I was rooting for. And certainly the 62 Mets were the worst team in history. And I am proud to have been a part of that and proud to have seen them at the polo grounds. I saw the Dodgers and the Giants play at the polo grounds in 57 because I convinced my dad I wanted to see a Dodger road game and I wanted to see what they looked like in road uniforms. The New York Giants saying goodbye to the Dodgers and vice versa here at the polo grounds. 
From the Giants win it 3-2, we'd be remiss to say that it's kind of a sad day for everybody concerned if this will be the final game played here. Both clubs walking off. Perhaps it may be the last time we'll be walking out of the press box here at the Polar Grounds. But down the right field line and the left field line and the big bleachers with the Eddie Grant Memorial out there at the base of the dressing room. And you just kind of say goodbye and let it go at that. I guess everybody has his own thoughts, and that'll do it. And again, when you're seven, eight years old, that's a big deal. Yeah, and in September of 1957, as you just heard in that clip, both teams are playing for the last time against each other at the polo grounds. And I know you're a young guy, but take me back to that moment that day. What stood out to you about the polo grounds? Well, it was obviously shaped entirely differently than Ebbets Field was. It was very short down the lines, 250, 260 feet. And it was double deck. And that was down the line. And then, of course, straightaway center field was about 475 feet away. And so it was kind of built like a uh, where they park airplanes. You know, it was just big and long and not terribly wide. And I remember sitting down the first baseline. I have no recollection of the outcome of the game. But there I was, and I, I felt like a, a seven-year-old road warrior. Hey, we were in Upper Manhattan. We were in no stinking Brooklyn anymore. We were <laughs> watching the Dodgers and the Giants, and it was a road game. And then... The Dodgers leave town, and then 62, the Mets come in, and they play there until 64 when Shea opened. And so I went to a bunch of the uh, Met games uh, as a young one. But uh, by 63, I was old enough to go with friends by myself without parents to the games. Yeah, how would you guys get there? I lived on Long Island, so we would take the Long Island Railroad uh, to Penn Station. And then we would take the subway up to, uh, what was it, 100 and... 155th Street, I think. Yeah. So that, And that's what we did. And then uh, there was one game, the uh, Mets played the Cubs. Today, the Mets beat the Chicago Cubs here at the Polo Grounds. And Lindsey Nelson, Bob Murphy, and I are in hand to bring you every bit of the action. And it was an afternoon game. And the big thing was to get home in time for dinner. Turned out to be a 14-inning game. And the uh, Cubs took the lead in the top of the 14th. And then in the bottom of the 14th, the Mets had a player named Tim Harkness. The winning run at first base, and the batter is Tim Harkness. Left-handed hitter from Canada who had a very peculiar stance. And he hits the game-winning home run. Fastball to right field, deep to right field, way back there. It's going to go all the way. I mean, this is a half a century before it's called a walk-off. Now, the crowd is going crazy. Let's not forget, the Mets were horrible. (laughs) Any victory was savored. So he hits the home run, and the clubhouse at the Polo Grounds was in straightaway center field, 475 feet away. The players would climb the stairs to get to to their respective clubhouses, and that was it. So now... Countless dozens of fans storm the field in jubilation as Harkness hits the home run. And we gather in front of the stairs to the clubhouse in straightaway center. The fans are now gathered under the clubhouse windows in center field, doubtless yelling for Timmy Harkness, the hero, 
of the day. And he had a curtain call from the clubhouse, which had never been seen before. And he comes out in his underwear and he <laughs> is waving to the crowd. And I'm, I guess, 14. And at that point, I think this is the neatest thing in the world. The other thing about the polo grounds, I remember you could uh, exit by walking down the line and towards center field on the warning tracks. And there was exit doors in straightaway center. Uh, so you could actually get on the field and see the enormity of it. And Tim Harkness's home run, again, that was 63. You know, they won 120 or lost 120 in 62. Went 40 and 120, and they were lucky the two games were rained out. But they were bad, but they were lovably bad. And they were like, I guess they were like step-parents, the Mets were, after the Dodgers and Giants left town. But so the the Mets, when they were born, even as bad as they were, and Casey Stengel was magically their manager. And you'll never get sick when you're watching the Mets this summer. They were a lovable lot, even though they stunk. And so, as the Mets sink slowly into the cellar, we say goodbye. But they'll be back next year and the next. But that was okay. They were our bad team. Right. And, and, and so that the whole polo grounds thing was part of the, the lure to the Met magic. And so it would have been 58 or 59 that you attended your first game at Yankee Stadium. Did you go then? I do remember a doubleheader, a Sunday doubleheader against the Orioles. What year? I can't tell you. And then Yankee Stadium was enormous. You know, it's 461 feet to a deep left center, 457 to straightaway center. And then, of course, very short down the lines in left and right. And there was this enormous scoreboard in right center field. And we played two. It's Yankee baseball time again. This is Bob Delaney welcoming you to another baseball game brought to you by the makers of Valentine Beer. I think my dad may have taken me to the, that Sunday doubleheader against the Orioles. But the fact that there were two games, one admission, and again, in those days, they didn't draw 50,000 a night. Baseball wasn't a big draw in those days. Right. There were nice crowds. You know, I, I, I don't think there were even 20,000 people the day that Maris hit his 61st. So it, it was a different time and place. Do you have any pieces of ballpark memorabilia or anything like that that you saved from when you were a kid? What I do have, I have a, about three oil paintings of various angles of Ebbets Field in my office and one large painting of the uh, iconic Schaefer scoreboard in Wright. Memorabilia didn't exist in those days. Yeah, you may have taken home a yearbook and then stuffed it in a, in a closet somewhere. So th those kinds of things were not front and center coming back from a game. But I do have, I think, an old 57 yearbook, uh, a Dodger yearbook, but I've got handwriting on it and all that. It, you know, it's not <laughs> it's not, not anything to resell. Emmitsfield <laughs> is just one of those places that was a part of me. And again, we always seem to remember those the first time we do things. And when you're a seven-year-old kid and the first time you go to a big league ballpark, and it happens to be, luckily for me, Ebbets Field. Uh, the memories are so embedded in my head, I don't need no stinking memorabilia. 
I look back and there are photos of uh, the polo grounds during demolition where they have uh, the figural seats just in a whole giant pile, maybe 100, 200 of those seats waiting to be taken to the dump. <laughs> I mean, again, that was never, nobody gave that a serious thought. And if they did, I wasn't aware of it. Again, this whole memorabilia thing has, has changed so dramatically. Just the other day, Sal Durante passed away. That may not be a name you know. Sal Durante was the fella who caught Roger Maris's 61st home run. Low. Ball two. The crowd is reacting negatively. They want to see Maris uh, get something he can swing on. There it is. 61. And many years later, when I was working radio in New York on the then 20th anniversary of the Maris home run, I interviewed him on the radio. He was a trash collector. He was a garbage man, sanitation man, whatever the, the appropriate title of his work. He was a lovely guy who just happened to catch it. And it wasn't like they had to legitimize the uh, the ball with a little sticker right. uh, or any of that. <laughs> and then I thought, well, this is kind of cool. Maybe in the next half hour, I would do these like little five-minute updates on this talk show in New York. And so I thought, let me see if I can get a hold of Red Barber. And so I got Red Barber on the phone, and I had Red and Sal talking to one another. Because wow. Red had made the television call that nobody listens to because it was so droll. Uh, the Rizzuto call is the one that everybody plays, but that was the radio call. Here's the windup. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Holy cow. Holy cow. And Red was more understated. And he basically said, there it goes, and it's $5,000. $5,000, somebody. Which is, I think, what they were going to pay whoever caught the ball. Right. Um, and that was that was his call. And so I had them talking to each other about that moment. And in my broadcasting career, that was actually one of the neatest things that just kind of happened uh, on the 20th anniversary of the Maris home run. So point being, there may have been 20,000 people in a stadium in those days It's that sat about 60,000. You were hired, uh, Charlie, by the Dodgers in 2004, and you went to share the news with your mom, I think at your childhood home on Long Island that we've mm -hmm. talked about. Can you tell me about the moment, uh, that particular moment, and the call then you received while you were there with your mom? You know, I've lived a charm serendipitous life. I'd just done 14 years at ESPN. I finished three years with the Yankees, and they were terrific. My contract was up, and I got a call in August of 2004 from the Dodgers. They were going to make a move. They wanted to replace Ross Porter in the booth. The uh, new ownership had arrived, the McCourts, and I got this call out of the blue. Would you... Uh, have any interest, uh, we're going to make a change. Would you have any interest in coming out to work for the Dodgers? They didn't know that what that call would mean. At the end of the season, the end of 2004, there were conjecture in the newspaper, would I return to the Yankees? If not, where would I go? Blah, blah. My mom at that time was about 90. And my dad, her husband of 58 years, had passed away a few months earlier. And so she's at home where I grew up, where I listened to Dodger games and announced Dodger games in the basement. And I said, Mom, when I have a deal, I'll come out. I was living in Manhattan. We'll have lunch. I'll tell you all about it. So 
Now I've got the offer. I'm like, oh man. And I'm driving. It's about an hour's drive from where I was in Manhattan to where I grew up on Long Island. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to break the news to her that I am leaving and I am going <laughs> far, far away. And I get to the house in which I grew up and she's all excited. And I said, Mom, do you remember the team I grew up rooting for? She says, oh, yes, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Okay, that's one. Two, do you remember the stadium Pop took me to for my first game? And she said, oh, yes, Ebbets Field. I'm going, oh, two for two. This is great. <laughs> Three, do you remember the announcer I wanted to be like when I was a kid? And she kind of, I said, Vin Scully. And she said, oh, good. When do we move to Los Angeles? <laughs> went, well, we'll figure that out. As I am telling her that, in that moment, within one or two minutes of just this incredibly emotional, occupational, familial moment, phone rings. And it's an L.A. area code. And I pick it up. And uh, at the other end of the phone, Charlie, it's Vin. I just want to welcome you to the Dodger family. Wow. I turned to my mom and said, I think I have to take this. Yeah. And so I go outside to my very tiny little backyard, and I'm pacing back and forth as Vin is welcoming me to the Dodgers. But in that moment, I was that seven-year-old kid announcing Dodger games in the basement because of the guy who has just called me to welcome me to the Dodgers. In the home where this all took place for me, not 15 feet from that kitchen where that radio was, and Vin Scully is welcoming me to the Dodgers. If there's any one single moment of just a million emotions going through me, like a, a, an emotional prism, there it was. And to this day, whenever the Dodgers bring in a new announcer, uh, I'm, I'm the first to call and welcome them because, because of Vin. Wow. And it's an incredible story. For over a decade, you, Rick Monday... Billy Delury, who, by the way, worked for the Dodgers all the way back to their days in Brooklyn, and mm -hmm. Vince Goley would eat lunch or dinner together before games. Certainly, if you if you do the tally, probably well over a thousand meals. Is there one story from his time in Brooklyn at Ebbets Field or his partnership with Red Barber that stands out in those conversations that maybe you had at mealtime? You know, I, I must tell you, I'm so lucky. I was with Vin for 14 years, and I'm now heading into my 19th. And so... The lunches and dinners that we had, and they were a joy. Four guys, one of whom happened to have been the best who ever did what he did, and that was Vin. And Mo, of course, had a great baseball career. Billy Delury was just a lovely, charming human being. It was just four guys having a meal every day. Uh, and so we would talk about life, its own self, maybe the game the night before, maybe the game coming up. And so over the course of all that time and all those hours, there's one story right off the top of my head. I asked him once, you ever get nervous? And he said, yes, in 1953, he's about <laughs> to announce uh, the World Series. And he was still living at home with his mom. Vin was like, I guess, 23 or 24 at the time. He's about to go off and be a part of the, the World Series radio broadcast for the first time. And he never let on to his mom or anybody else. And he said he was 
frightened. But you know, by the time he left the house and he was on his way to uh, Ebbets Field, he was fine. And I, I've said this about Vin, of all the people I've been around in my life, in my career, he was as comfortable in his own skin as anybody I've ever met. But to envision a 23 or 24-year-old kid who's about to do his first World Series game after having breakfast at home prepared by his mom, being nervous as hell, that's just one of those little visual moments in the back of my head that I'll always remember. By the way, a quick aside on the late Billy Delury. Delury began his career with the Dodgers the same year as Vince Coley, actually, in 1950, mm-hmm. eventually becoming the team's traveling secretary. Do you recall the, uh, the story surrounding the 1951 National League playoff game between the Dodgers and the Giants that Billy Delury was involved in? Do you remember oh, that? sure. Yeah. Now, Billy, God bless him. He was just a, a lovely, decent, fun, smart, street smart Brooklyn guy. And he, it was early in his career, and the expectation was that the Dodgers were going to win, and he was sent back to Ebbets Field. Of course, the game was played at the Polo Grounds to get tickets prepared for the World Series. As he is on the subway from Manhattan to Brooklyn, Bobby Thompson, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant. Back of throws. And Billy had no idea by the time he got to Brooklyn. Again, we didn't have transistor radios or any of that. He walks into the uh, Dodgers office at Ebbets Field and was dealt uh, dealt the bad news. He was the last one to know. I think he was 17 or 18 years old at the time, ready to get those tickets out. And uh, yeah, sorry, we're not. that's not going to happen. And one of the things that fans today, fans are fans, they'll always be fans. But the Brooklyn Dodgers... The Brooklyn Dodgers were utterly unique uh, for many reasons. One, it's the only team that didn't have a a city name in front of them. They were a borough. Brooklyn was a borough of New York. And that meant a lot because in Brooklyn, especially after the war, there were so many immigrants who came over primarily from, uh, from Europe, whether it was Italian, Irish. Polish. It was an amalgam of all these people. And most of the folks who had come to America, their kids were now first generation Americans. The only language they had in common was this baseball team in Brooklyn. And so they were more than just a baseball team, the Dodgers were in this community. And so when they won, the emotions were ratcheted up. When they lost, it became all the more painful. They were great every year up until the time they had to face the Yankees in the World Series. And, you know, it would be torture until finally in 55. But the Brooklyn Dodgers represented a community more than any other team that I have watched, seen, or been around just because of the time, place, situation of the post World War II uh, generation, they were a big deal. And so when they when they lost to the Giants in 51, it was cataclysmic. Mm-hmm. But when they finally beat the Yankees in 55, it was better than VE Day. Hey, John, how do you feel? Very good, Frank. Here's a fellow who's been the clubhouse man for the Brooklyn Dodgers for about... 40 years. 40 years. Hey, John, 
Thanks, Tiny, for coming on our show. And I hope you fans have enjoyed hearing from these very happy world champion Brooklyn Dodgers. I can't imagine a, a situation where we have another team like that. We had Carl Erskine on in season one of the podcast, and he talked about, as you said, when they won. We were treated like royalty in Brooklyn. That if I pitch a good ball game, I'd come home. They have a street party, and they dance in the street, celebrate all over the place. These guys, by the way, they lived in Brooklyn. Yeah, they lived in Brooklyn because they had to work in the offseason. So right. it wasn't like, oh, they're going to go to some other home somewhere. So right. they moved They moved into the community. Sandy Koufax worked in an appliance store. He sold like radios and TVs and that kind of stuff because <laughs> that's what they had to do. So they became part of the community. You would see them on the street. Right. It was like, wow, this is neat there. It was not that huge income financial disparity between player and fan. They were neighbors. And there's a, a wonderful new documentary about Carl Erskine, which I was honored to uh, to narrate. And they were neighbors and they were friends and they played every year together. There was no free agency. Again, I'm not saying that's not a judgmental thing. That is just what it was and how it was when it was. And so, yeah, th- there, there will never be a relationship between a community and its team as the Dodgers were in Brooklyn. And that includes all of the other teams and cities and towns in baseball. The times have changed. It wasn't that way pre-Brooklyn Dodgers and certainly hasn't been since. And that's why it was such a gut punch when they left after the 1957 season and moved out west. You know, the parents of my generation, who are long since gone, took that disappointment and pain with them to their graves. It was more than just a team leaving. It was part of the community had just been had been destroyed and, and, and just set aside. I was eight and I didn't quite understand it. And so then where I grew up and where Dodger fans were in, in the New York metropolitan area, there was a visceral hatred for the O'Malley's. And then fast forward all those years later, I get hired by the Dodgers and people say, well, what do you think about the Dodgers having moved to L.A.? I said, I'm passionate on both counts. But in my heart, the pain of an eight-year-old suddenly being abandoned by its baseball team, uh, that one that one left a mark. Charlie, I'll end with this. You've had some great, great calls in your career. I think of about Aaron Boone's home run, game seven of the 2003 ALCS. His first at-bat of the game. There's a fly ball. The Dodgers winning the 2020 World Series. Furious to Adamas. Call strike three. The Dodgers win. Finally, the wait is over. And this September, Albert Pujols' 700th home run at Dodger Stadium. Here's a 1-1. And a high fly ball. There goes number 700. Can you talk about that Pujols call? The Pujols call, it was strange. You know, again, you knew that the World Series was going to end one way or another. So you have a sense that, all right, but you're building up to this moment. You knew at some point that the Yankees and Red Sox, that game would be decided in extra innings. But Pujols was a guy who had played for the Dodgers for, what, about a year and a half? Right. Um, it was sitting on 
698 home runs. And okay, wouldn't it be nice if? So he, he hit 699. I'm thinking, well, isn't this interesting? He comes <laughs> up and didn't even have time to build up the 700th when bang, he hit it. I think I was talking about the fact that the made Pujols' run so extraordinary. He never had a season where he hit 50 home runs. He just hit 40-something every year, and he hits it. It was like, oh. <laughs> in the case of the Boone home run, John Sterling and I were partners, and in extra innings, John would do the 10th, I'd do the 11th, he'd do the 12th, and so on. Yankees and Red Sox still tied after 10. They go to the bottom of the 11th, and uh, it's now my turn, and uh, John is building up to the moment, and we'd come out late from an extended commercial break. And quickly he hands the mic to me, and I have no time to prep it at all. I said, first pitch, 11th inning, there's a high fly ball, and, and on goes the call. And in the case of the Dodgers winning the World Series, at the moment I made the call, I was doing it quite literally from the living room in my home. Let's not forget it was 2020, and I, wasn't, I didn't go out. I was calling home and road games from home. Yeah, weren't you like in your in your sweatpants and a t-shirt? <laughs> Basically. Yeah. And so now Curious finishes it off. And I'm saying finally the wait is over, the Dodgers, the champions, et cetera. And in that moment, not unlike the call that I got from Vin, all of those memories kind of showered upon me. Uh, me calling the games in my basement in front of a black and white TV. 55 years later, I'm calling the World Series from my living room, only it's for real and people are listening. In a year like no other, where joy has been so hard to come by, tonight, tears of joy, let them flow. Those three calls, for different reasons, have a, a pretty good memory with me. Yeah, and think about, too, it. 2020, when you're calling that World Series game from your living room, you're feet away, I think, as you mentioned, from the radio that you listen to Brooklyn Dodger games on and your mom's kitchen. That's exactly right. And as, as I'm talking to you now, I'm looking to my left and I'm, I'm looking at that radio. So, yeah, it was one of those moments. Again, as I said, when, when I got the call from Ben, it, it was in that moment where I, I was that little kid in the home in which I grew up telling my mom, I am leaving. She's telling me I'm coming with you. And she stayed in an assisted living place until she passed away years ago. And I am now announcing the World Series for real in my living room. And again, all of these emotional, sentimental, occupational experiences were happening as these words are shooting out of my mouth. Well, Charlie, it is a, an incredible career, and, and there are a handful of guys that I've kind of documented here on the podcast who have inspired me with their storytelling. This podcast is all about storytelling, and like I said, there are a handful of people and uh, throughout my life listening to growing up who have been great storytellers who have sort of provided a blueprint of what that might look like, and you are right there at the top of the list, so it's been an honor to uh, go down memory lane with you and and hear you tell stories. Well, thank you for having me. It was an absolute joy. I never tire of hearing firsthand accounts from folks who watched ball games at Ebbets Field, the Polo Grounds, or Old Yankee Stadium. I could listen to those stories all day long. 
The Lost Ballparks podcast is a labor of love and would not be possible without your support. If you'd like to elevate your podcast experience and hear episodes a week early, as well as some other cool benefits, including behind-the-scenes videos, go to lostballparks.com and click on our Patreon page. Again, we couldn't do this without your support, so thank you. Want to thank our producers, Xavier Guerra, Maddie Zavlakis, Mike Dunn, and Briggs Buckingham. We'll talk to you next week here on the Lost Ballparks podcast.